0: This is series three of Brave New Girl podcast, and I'm Lou Hamilton, author and illustrator of Brave New Girl, how to be fearless. And I welcome you to the stories of real life Brave New Girls, who are creatives, founders, campaigners, health practitioners, and thought leaders who are making a positive impact in the world. This week's guest is electric violinist Lisa Rowling, who's worked for over 20 years at the top of the UK music industry and as founder of the Red Hot Strings Agency, plays and supplies musicians for TV shows, major events, touring with the likes of Kanye West and Simply Red and recently released her new album, Sundown Sessions, The Lockdown Diaries. Welcome, Lisa, to Brave New Girl podcast. Hi, Lisa, how are you?
1: Hello, Lou. Good morning. Lovely to see your cheerful
0: face. I'm feeling like I should have put more lipstick on for this podcast. (laughs) That's the brilliant thing about podcasts is we can just be ourselves, not worry about anything, which I love. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, this is the first time that we've met probably, I don't know, in 10 years. Yeah. The last time was I was directing a film for a charity, Love 146. And it was a flash mob event outside the National Gallery. National Gallery, Trafalgar Square. Trafalgar Square. Yes, it was 11 years ago. Wow. <laughs> and so can you describe what that event was, uh, how you got involved and what the music was and what it was like and the, the atmosphere? And
1: Yeah, it was just, uh, I mean, I remember... 2010 very distinct it was a very crazy year for me for lots of reasons but I remember just getting this very last minute phone call as as often is in in the um, creative arts oh Lisa can you just come down and play electric violin in front of you know hundreds of West End dancers and singers on this track and it was a cover of um, the Annie Lennox track um, Little Bird that's right yeah and I said uh, yes i'm free on the state yes i can do yes i think that's the charity's amazing of course but they'd sort of omitted to point out uh, or notice that if i was you know, playing an electric violin in the middle of Trafalgar Square for a flash mob that they couldn't actually record the violin. So um, we hurriedly had to organise a recording studio session for me to go in and overlay violin on top of this track, just, you know, ad lib, because obviously there were no parts. And I do remember the lead vocals were done by an extraordinary singer who was the lead in Wicked at the time. Yeah, she she was amazing. And so I just went in, Put these violin parts down, and then turned up at Trafalgar Square with, with I think it was about a hundred and fifty dancers, wasn't yeah, it? And they were all West End shows. Yeah, and I'm guessing we must have filmed it on a Sunday because they it ha- was the only day that everybody wasn't working. Yeah, because um, otherwise they're doing their eight shows a That's week, That's right? Um, and how. Ha- and having started my career on the west end stage in a show i i know very well all about about eight shows a week yes yeah, so it was amazing the the energy in trafalgar square it was a be- i remember it was a beautiful day and we all had to wear white and um I remember I was wearing white jeans and a and a little white vest, and I had my red electric violin um yeah it was it was really really fantastic just the just the collective energy of all of that and um yeah, very much missing things like that at the moment during lockdown,
0: yeah, that couldn't have happened this year oh, could it or last and it was yeah. Or last year, but it was incredible. And the performers only had two rehearsals, and uh, and I remember turning up for the second rehearsal, and and I said, "Which way is everyone pointing facing?" Because we'd planned where the seven cameras were going to be around Trafalgar Square and the one of the buildings. We were going to have a cameraman at the top of one of the buildings opposite the National Gallery, and they said, "Oh, they're facing out to the crowd." And I said, "Yeah, but our main camera people are on the balcony of the National Gallery." Mm, that's right. I remember they were filming down to honours. Yeah, yeah, and I had I had to make the call and say, "You're going to have to get everyone to turn around and do it the whole other way." <laughs> and uh, so I was not popular, but actually that work it did work really well, and yeah. um, and everyone was amazing, and and the energy of the of of you and the dancers was Aww. was incredible, and the little girl Thank that you. was sort of the The center of um to kind of the symbol of what the film was about which was uh sex trafficking in in the UK and trying to raise awareness about that um and it raised you know it did raise a lot of awareness and I hope some money towards towards the charity Yeah. yeah but uh yeah that was an amazing amazing doing doing a flash mob um, under those circumstances
1: <laughs> I mean absolutely it's one of those things in life where you know as, as a as an artist as a performer you just get you know thrown stuff and and if you can do it then absolutely you know and and for an artist the only way really you've got any kind of power it's not like we're bankers we can give thousands of pounds it Is to actually use our talent use our creative
0: skills and yeah. and do something yeah. Yeah. And so you said, you know, rightly that, you know, something like that couldn't have happened in the last year and and this half first half of this year. And so I wonder, you know, how have you coped as a performer and, um, you know, as an industry, how how have people managed sort of emotionally as well as sort of just trying to keep going? I, I think
1: there's, I think there's been a whole spectrum of of how artists have coped. Some have not coped at all. Some have only just, you know, scraped by. Some have had to take a job working for Amazon or, you know, delivery or all of this. So lots of people have just gone off and done something completely different because there was no other option. You know, if you want to put food on the table, you've got to work. But Personally, for me, the, the the one thing that that changed um, the whole experience for me was very early on. Actually, my duo partner in Red Hot Strings, my duo Sarah, Sarah violin, she she phoned me up and she said, um, and she's a single mum, and she won't mind me saying that. She's a single mum with two kids, and she said she phoned me up and she said. I'm going to live stream every day during lockdown in my garden at half past six. And I said, you are completely mad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said, you know, you're trying to work as well to like bring some income in. You've got two kids. I, I, and, and also the amount of repertoire that you have to practice, rehearse, set up the shot. I said, you're, you're insane. She said, I'm going to do it anyway. She did it and it all started going quite well and she was live streaming on Facebook and and getting quite a lot of people sort of tuning it because she did it half past six every night and she called it sundowner sessions okay so it was kind of like half past six and do you remember the weather at the start of lockdown one was incredible you know it was was amazing um so you know she'd be in the garden glass of rose electric violin little PA set up and she'd just play one track and do a bit of chat and that was it and people really sort of hooked into this as kind of a lovely regular point in the day anyway our prime minister boris announced one day that you were allowed to have one person in the garden do you remember that do you remember (laughs) that day and I was doing my violin practice at the time by the piano and I sort of had this epiphany and sort of rang her up and said, right, I'm coming over. We're going to do a duo live stream. We're going to do Red Hot Strings. And, and you know, which meant legally we could play together as performance because obviously we were both really missing that. You know, there's only so much fun you can have playing to a backing track. So we got together and I think we did um, Four A's Pavan. As like our first track, and and people loved it, and we were getting sort of five thousand people tuning in on on this live stream on Facebook regularly, and and we didn't do the duo. Uh, we do duo sort of once a week or maybe twice a week, but we'd and then um, she come round to my garden and we'd sit and then one day we were sat there and there was the uh inevitable Friday night bottle of rosé on the table and and I said um and and anyway she'd she'd sort of recorded some chords on the piano and she said oh Lise have a listen to these chords so I, I had a listen I was like and I just started singing this classical riff over the top of it and I was like why don't we write something? And she's like, "I love that riff that you're singing." And it was just some classical melody that had popped in my head that just worked with these chords that she'd written. And then we st- and then basically we started writing these tracks. So we'd we'd start off with a chord structure, and then we'd add classical melodies over the top, but we'd kind of arrange them or alter notes or or stuff so that they fitted so we did a Mozart one where we used uh, the main theme from Mozart's 40th symphony and another uh, Mozart rondo alla turca and then we just put it over like this deep house. we got um, an ex-boyfriend of mine who's an amazing producer to like produce these tracks for us so we made these deep house tracks and and anyway and People love them. (laughs) Um, And next thing you know, this little independent record label, um, Thoroughbend Music, approached Sarah and said, I love this, I love what you're doing. Um, Why don't you do an album? And why don't we call it Lockdown Diaries? Because it's kind of a diary of the music you were playing through lockdown. And obviously, because Sarah um, started this on her own, and she was doing such a diverse mix of kind of classic jazz Not classical jazz, but classical and jazz and deep house and pop. So it was like a real mixture. Um, And then obviously the duo started later on. So I think she did about seven solo tracks and we put five duo tracks on the album and recorded it at Surrey Studios and we released it in January. So it's on Spotify Under um Sarah Violin and Lisa Rollin. Um so you can get the album on there. And it's on all downloadable platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, all of that.
0: So isn't that amazing that, you know, out of circumstances that that could be sort of very tough. And actually, you know, when you think creatively, you can find ways to, to get through tough times. And and that's what you that's what you both did. And and you've come out with a with an album.
1: Yeah, I know, it's amazing. Um, And we haven't been resting on our laurels. We have actually gone back in the studio and we've recorded um, two, well, two and a half tracks towards the next one as well. So, um, we've, you know, we've got the product and we know that people really like it, but as with anything, it's all about publicity. So that's
0: what we need. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to play a little bit right now. Oh! I mean, presumably you always knew that you were musical. How did your kind of first relationship with music come about?
1: Gosh, my first relationship with music came about in primary school when um, the the music teacher in my primary school rang up my parents and said, um, this child is very musical. You instantly have to get to, to um, you know, instrumental lessons. And my parents were like, well that's great but we can't afford that you know we just can't so um nothing happened but one thing that did happen was that I learned recorder at my primary school and um so for I think two years from being sort of six to eight um and then when I was eight I wrote my first song and um I stood up in front of the whole primary school and sang it and the music teacher sort of train the choir to sort of sing the chorus. So they backed me. So that was my first songwriting at the age of eight. And then, you know, because I was at just a little state primary school in Yorkshire, um, we had a peripatetic uh, violin teacher came into the school. And he basically auditioned the entire year. And he chose four students to take up violin, I was one of them. So we had sort of group lessons. Can you imagine? Four of us in a half an hour slot. Um, and then what happened very quickly was that I kind of flew and the others didn't. And then God bless his teacher, he used to stay behind after school and just of his own volition used to give me a private violin lesson. And then when I was 10, he phoned up my parents and just said, look, you know, you've really got to get this girl to music school. Um, so I was shortly dispatched off to a um, a, Saturday, uh, a Saturday morning music school um, from the age of 10, where I used to have to get two buses across the city on my own at the age of 10 to go to this music school um, that started at nine and used to finish at one. So I did that every Saturday and then my dad would come and pick me up. Quite, quite unusual because most, most classical musicians, I think even now, are, are sort of the whole private school route. Da, 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 and that wasn't my route. And that was very unusual back then. And it's still very unusual back now, e-
0: even now rather. So yeah. And were you feeling, oh yeah, I really, this is really fun. It's a fun thing to do outside of school. Or were you thinking, this is something that I want to do when I grow up? fun
1: I don't think fun really goes into it it's kind of like almost like a priest would say it was my calling so it was what I just knew I was going to do but um I had a great um confusion in you like if you like in in my life because at the age of two and a half um I announced to my mother that I was going to be a ballet dancer I I think I from the age of two I I badgers her every day for ballet lessons and at the age of two and a half I think she finally caved in and I went to ballet lessons age two and a half and then I was just going to ballet lessons at at the drop of a hat whenever I could and again was flying with that so by by the age of eight I was already quite established with my dancing Um, And so, you know, I had no spare time, you know, I was just doing loads of ballet, loads of music, loads of practicing, obviously, violin. And then obviously, I had to start piano lessons as well. And again, that's, that's almost unheard of, you know, to be a ballet dancer and a violinist is, you know it's kind of unheard of um because both are tremendous disciplines and require so much energy and time so yeah as a kid I had I had no free time I was always doing one of those two things and then at 13 uh auditioned for um the, a sort of symphony orchestra of, of under 18s and got into that. Um, so every school holiday, I was off on residential courses doing that. But then at, but then at 13, another uh, pivotal thing happened to me. Uh, and that was that my ballet teacher applied to send me to the Royal Ballet School. Uh, in Richmond Park, White Lodge, which would have been an absolutely transformative experience had I gone. But there was a small spanner in the works. And that was, um, I was too tall. So at 13, I was already four inches too tall to audition. So that, that audition form never, ever got sent back. And at 13, I sort of just shrugged my shoulders and went, well, you know, that that decision's been made for me. I'm I'm going to be a musician, but I didn't I didn't give up on dance. I started diversifying and looking at kind of modern dance and jazz and and contemporary. So I kept dancing and
0: kept going with the music. Yeah. Did, at what point did you start to combine the two? Ah, <laughs> that's a very interesting question.
1: I I didn't uh, when I was a teenager, um, but at at 17 i was sort of placed with this dilemma of do i go to music college so my best friend was going to royal college another friend was going to royal northern but none of those did dance like you know it was just so so different and i f- i remember going to the library because this was all pre internet and finding this place this university that where you could do a performing arts degree where you could do dance music drama but first study in one of them So I auditioned there and got in and um, went there. And then, so I was doing them all separately. I was doing my music and I was doing my dance classes every day. And I was doing acting as well. So I was learning um, the importance of, you know, voice control, diction, how to throw my voice. So I was doing all of this um, with all in and like a, just loads of artists it was a little, little bit like I don't know if you remember kids from fame it was a little bit sort of kids from fame for three years um but then in my final year um a couple of the blokes who were doing like music production asked me to play electric violin on a track so they loaned me an electric violin from somewhere and I was like oh this is quite cool Um, and then the Vanessa May thing hit you know and she had a worldwide hit with her album I thought "Mm, yeah I could do that but she wasn't a mover as classical musicians generally aren't you know they're not movers they they they're, they're not physical people and i thought oh wouldn't it be great if i like started putting some choreography in so it was it was kind of well i kind of forged my own path really because nobody was doing that and i thought i can do this and then after Vanessa May, I just thought this would really work with a quartet, this like electric instrument thing. So I went around the music colleges, I went around Royal College, Guildhall and uh, Academy, Royal Academy, and I auditioned other girls. And I was looking for girls that had a bit of oomph, bit of vavavoom, and they weren't adverse to, to learning choreography. I'm like, you know, I don't expect you to be dancers, but I can teach you, you know, I have all this, my whole life of training, I can teach you how to move. And the rest is history. (laughs) I formed um, the first all-female electric quartet in the UK.
0: and When was that? How old were you?
1: That, yeah, so that was back in probably 2002. So it was about, gosh, 19 years ago. Um, And I'd heard on The Grapefan through a cellist that I wanted to audition that um, Mel Bush, who'd um, signed Vanessa May, was putting together a quartet of electric, and they were called Bond. So they had an album out, but I obviously I didn't have a record company backing me, so I put the girls together uh, with me in it, and, um, and then I sort of added the icing on the cake, which was choreography to kind of just make it more show, more showbiz, more, you know, work the stage, more dynamic. And because I was sort of unusual (laughs) um, that I had these two facets to my, you know, uh, classically trained musician and a
0: dancer I wove them together, and uh, and so you you've got the music, you've got the movement, but then you add the sort of costumes, and uh, and that's like a whole other level, isn't it? The 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 dresses and the heels and the yeah, yeah. masks, the glamour. Yeah. And so yeah. did that happen sort of organically right at the beginning, or was that something you started to sort of feel your way towards? Uh, for me, that
1: was from image right from the outset was always so paramount because. When I think I was 15, I started modelling um, as well, just to like <laughs> a bit more cash, uh, you know, because the music business is so uncertain. So I was doing hair shows and all that sort of thing. So um, and and then I got, you know, sent on photo shoots and stuff. So I started to like learn about styling, the importance of styling, of image, about, um, you know, uh, we used to have um, what's called Z cars, which were like little postcards that used to have your modeling pictures on and all your measurements and stuff. So I did one of those for the for the quartet, so you could send them off to agents and things, so they could see you. So I, I became so. Yeah, but again, because of that kind of modelling aspect to my career, I, I knew the importance straight away. Whereas back then, you know, classical musicians just sort of rocked up in a whatever. A long black a, dress. A long, a long black dress or if they were a bloke, a black tie. And and that was it. You know, nobody cared about image or grooming or or anything whereas now you know Vanessa May I suppose was the first one but you know because Mel Bush had come from the pop world he knew the power of you know power of sex you know sex sells so he was like right we'll get her in water in a see-through top you know we'll get a
0: a standout image um and people buy the album just for the image you you strike me as somebody that um has a very strong sense of self and and when you see photographs of you and 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 the others you come across very sort of empowered it doesn't seem like you're creating (laughs) yourselves as sex objects to sell the brand is that because naturally you were all very strong women with a sense of purpose was that a question in your mind no, not not really. I mean, it, it's an asset, isn't it? If you've got it, sell it.
1: If you've got it, flaunt it. You know, I remember um, Helena Bonham Carter when she was first photographed, I think, for Tatler and she had like a ball dress on but with loads of cleavage. And I remember her saying, I'm so glad cleavage is back in fashion. You know, she had it. She had a beautiful face. She had a fantastic cleavage. <laughs> and she knew it and my and she was working it, you know, Uh And I don't think, I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, I mean, you know, most corporate events that we were doing back in the day, most of them were men. So do men, you know, you've got to be of a certain talent and everything and training and everybody knows it takes years and years to be a professional violinist or cellist. Um, So nobody can discount that. Nobody can like put you down. Oh, well, you can't really well, actually, we can, you know, we we really can, we really can do this. And we've got the Royal College, Royal Northern or whatever behind us to say that. So kind of then dressing it all up in a really attractive parcel, beautiful dresses, you know, powerful choreography. It's like, wow, it's a win-win. It's like, my goodness, these girls can play and they look amazing. What's not to like,
0: you yeah, know? Yeah, and you you really, all of you look really look like you're owning it and and there's a power in that, isn't there yeah,
1: yeah, because you know, as I say to my little pupils, you know if everybody could play the violin, it wouldn't be impressive, you know everybody would do it, the fact it's so blinking hard is what's so impressive about it, you know. And the violin is very much like a human voice. You know, if you hear a beautiful singer, it can make you cry. You know, the first time I ever heard a recording of Roberta Flack singing Killing Me Softly, I wept you know, and when you hear a beautiful violin being played, it's so emotive, you know, it's so, um, it tugs at your heartstrings, pardon the pun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's mesmerizing is the way that you play and move and the sort of whole look of the, the performance, you know, it, you make it seem easy, but then you've got this incredible sound coming out of you. And, and that's the art, isn't it? That is the art. And, and it's also years and years of training because, you know,
1: just trying to do what we do in heels alone, is an absolute killer. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've me- we've learned many things the hard way, you know, things like, you know, when we first started, we used to wear lip gloss and then you do a massive hair flick and all your hair would just stick in the lip gloss. So then we 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 canned the lip gloss and we went just to lipstick. And um, you know, just things like that, you know, we've learned what heels, you know, buying heels with a bit of a platform sole that actually give you more support. Because, you know, playing the violin is so difficult physically anyway. And then you then put your weight and your balance completely out with heels. It's it's just... It's a nightmare.
0: <laughs> have, so, have there uh, been any falls? Oh, have there
1: been? Yeah, I fell off stage once, doing is where I I was. We were doing the drinks reception as a string quartet, and um, they put us on this tiny, tiny stage. We now have it in our rider that you have to have a stage of a minimum meterage, but we didn't back then. And um, I was on. We were on this tiny stage, sat in a quilt just playing as a normal string quartet, and I just sort of moved my chair back to get a bit. More and just fell off the stage, still holding my violin because I was playing my classical violin, which is worth a fortune, but managed to not injure myself or the violin, which is a miracle um yeah have we yeah we've had a few a few wardrobe malfunctions where the you know the zips have gone on the dress and you've had to kind of run off stage mid-number and yell at the sound guy or the lighting guy to zip to find a safety bit or do something yeah um yeah what else oh yeah we've had all sorts happen I mean gosh I should write a book one day I really should.
0: So when you you came up with this idea you you found the people that um, you could all work together yeah then how did you start to kind of put yourselves out there because you don't you weren't you didn't have a recording label with you um so it was kind of down to you to sort of yeah. get yourself yeah. and did you know it was going to be kind of corporates and events and that kind of thing as part and parcel of everything else I'd
1: started doing corporate gigs two years earlier um with uh, a bloke uh, Pete Hartley a male violinist and as a duo and um, so I knew I knew that there was a, a big market out there. I'd sort of seen it. I also knew it was very lucrative. And I also thought that sort of a very classy, high-end act could do really well. Um, so I just, you know, we did the photo shoot with the quartet and I just set about contacting my... Um, my agents that I'd already done like solo gigs with. And, and you know, and it, and kind of word of mouth spread very quickly because, you know, you're only as good as your last gig. So if you do a great gig, somebody hears about that or the agent gets great feedback, then you get another. And, and then it just started to snowball. And then before you knew it,
0: we well, were sort of flying around the world. I mean, literally just going here, there and everywhere. And, you know, if you've chosen and and auditioned three other people and so there are four of you and, you know, you all play well together, but presumably you all have different personalities. So over the years, has that foursome changed or have you sort of stayed the same? There have absolutely been changes. Um, The most definitive
1: one was 10 days after I got my son out of intensive care. So um, when I had my when I had my baby, he was very, very ill, and was put into intensive care for four weeks. And I got him out, um, and 10 days after that, so as you can imagine, I was extremely emotional and vulnerable. Um, The three other girls in my quartet sent me emails to say, um, actually, they didn't want to do this anymore. And then I found out that they'd actually set up a rival group with another player with a different name, doing exactly what we had oh. been doing with Blaze. So if you want to talk about um, being stabbed in the back, that I think is the absolute ultimate. How
0: did you cope with that? Because you were already coping with your son who was ill. Yeah,
1: And I was a a new mum, you know, and um, it it was horrific. It it wounded me to the core, I cannot tell you. Because, you know, I'd given these girls, um, I mean, they were all at at music college bar one. Well, two of them were at music college and one wasn't. And um, I'd sort of given them thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds worth of work and, you know, shown them another path. Um, and that's how they repaid me.
0: Do you know what, What did they talk to you about what they were feeling or they just?
1: No, they were very cowardly. Um, no, they just sent me, Just sent, they each sent me an email and that was that. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't really have a lot of um, positive things to say about those three girls. I really don't. Um, I just hope, I know they've all gone on to have children, so I just hope um, they think mm. back mm. to how they treated mm. me at that time and I hope they reflect on on their behaviour, I really do.
0: So that's a kind of real rock bottom. Mm. How do you find a way to sort of come up from that? Because that was a really low and, and you're, you're sort of, you know, as a new mum, you're not really in, in the kind of headspace to kind of be dealing with anything else other than, just trying to learn to be a new mum so did you park it or did you start to kind of think of well think, think of ways to move forward
1: yeah I am um, well the thing is I had I had gigs in the diary you know that I had to fulfill I had to fulfill these contracts and um I mean you know I was never going to be one of these who had six months maternity leave <laughs> I think I think six days after I got my son out of hospital, I, I did a solo gig, you know. Um and I brought my sister in the car to sort of look after my son in between like sound checking and performing and you know, like breastfeed sound check, breastfeed gig, drive home, you know. Um so I, I was always gonna be one of those and um you know I, I i'm a yorkshire girl i've i'm made of i'm made of sheffield steel um and i just thought right you know i've auditioned girls before i can jolly well do it again one girl i'd been on tour with with simply red when i was pregnant actually and i really liked her so i recruited her uh, and then a couple of others that i already knew and, and sort of worked with and said look I've been put in this situation, I've got these gigs in the diary. Do you want to do you want to form Blaze, you know, with a new lineup and just do new picks? And they're like, absolutely. Um, and these girls were great. Um, so we just sort of kept calm and carried on, really. Um, and then obviously what happens is every time you lose a player. They, they can see the gold dust in this. So they would then go off and form their own group. And then obviously people would hear about you or see your videos and stuff like that. And then, you know, and then you'd find a group in Russia had set up and a group in Ukraine. And it all just sort of went went like that, you know, just sort of girls all over now. There's groups all over, you know.
0: And so you, the the... Uh, quartet was blaze and then how did yeah. um you decide to do the duo red hot strings
1: well the duo and blaze was sort of almost from the outset because what would happen is you'd get a smaller gig or a smaller budget where they couldn't afford the quartet or it wasn't appropriate because they didn't have a big enough stage big enough budget and you say well we can do all the same material but with the two violinists and they're like oh that's a good idea so then I would always call the duo Red Hot String so um it so you and then obviously myself solo so you kind of had the three packages that you could just then send off um to everybody you know what whatever fitted their 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 stage size or their budget you know or what was appropriate you know sometimes the duo would just do the drinks reception and then the quartet would do the main stage you know things like things like that so we just had uh, we had uh, we could offer a lot to the client kind of to suit every venue and every budget
0: and then you you've sort of created a an agency really so you're you're getting other uh, musicians out to gigs that you're not necessarily going to be playing at. Is that right?
1: Yeah, um, I you know, I was. I mean, sometimes, you know, you get a double booking where, you know, you'd they'd want Blaze in two, but the quartet in two different places. And obviously you can only be in one place at one time. So then you'd put, and, and I used to really love that because um, back in the days of gigs, um, pre-COVID, um, I used to love that because... it used to give me a a real buzz about generating work for other girls, you know, and also the sound men that went with them. I just like, giving people work it it used to genuinely give me a real buzz you know and then obviously um with lockdown the duo so Sarah and I met when we were very young like like I think she was still she was still at art school she's another strange one she um instead of going to music college She'd been at a music school since she was sort of eight. Um, but at 18, she decided instead of going to music college, she was going to go to uh, art school and do, fine, uh, do a fine art degree. Um, and, but she kept gigging on the side. And I was doing a lot of TV shows um, back then, like backing, you know, all the big acts of the day. The girl who was booking them sort of said, "Oh, do you know any anybody else?" And I said, "Oh, I know this girl, Sarah." So we ended up doing all these TV shows together, you know, Good Morning and Top of the Pops. Always like we've we were forever on Top of the Pops. So we were doing all of that, and then after about ten years, I don't know, we lost touch, and um, so basically we lost touch for about ten years or more, and then. Um, I was on a skiing holiday and met this family who started saying, oh, we know an electric violinist. And I was like, oh, do you? What's her name? They said, her name's Sarah. I was like, oh. So anyway, we got back in touch through these friends I'd met on skiing holiday. And then we started to gig again and it turns out that we had a son and daughter the same age da 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 and we started gigging again and then we were just sort of getting back into the swing of it when lockdown happened um and then of course you know we, we live very close to one another are about 10 minutes drive and then we started you know doing the live streaming we've done the album da da da, da, da. so red hot
0: strings as a duo is alive and kicking so you have um, you were a dancer and a musician, and you started to combine those, and you created Blaze, and then Red Hot Strings, and and the agency, and and so all of this is so not only you, this sort of creative uh, powerhouse, you've also had to be a businesswoman, and and you know many people think that creatives can't be business people, um, and obviously you you prove them wrong (laughs) how has that been is that has that come as naturally to you as the creative side or has that been something that has been more challenging Uh,
1: technology um i found challenging that's you know i just spent this morning before we came on air um I actually somehow had duplicate YouTube channels (laughs) for Red Hot Strings. So I've been working out how to delete one of them. So we just had the one Red Hot Strings YouTube channel. Um, I think business-wise, I think... um, Again, it's you need a little bit of fearlessness. You need not to be scared to ask for money and talk about money and also to fight your corner. And I think a lot of artists don't like that. They don't like to talk about money. They don't. Um, and, and also, I think having a sense of worth. One of the things um, why there's been so many copycat groups is because younger girls would come straight out of music college, look at what you're doing on YouTube, copy it, as best as they could, and then just undercut you, you know. Um, and and what they're doing by doing that is not realising they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. They're actually making it harder for everybody because they're bringing the fee down. You know, I was doing a bit of a clean-out on my a laptop the other day, and, and I found an invoice back from 2007, and the money hasn't changed the gig fee hasn't changed you know so um i think for, you know although obviously the cost of living goes up and up and up as artists <laughs> you know i think unless you really are the 0.0001% you know the beyonce or the john legend you know it it's really hard you know you're existing on the same gig fee that you were doing in 2007 i mean that was you know, 14 years ago, and the fees have not gone up. And if anything, you know, people will try and barter you down. It's almost like, it's almost like sometimes the public forget that musicians have mortgages or have to eat or have childcare needs. You know, it's it's almost like they forget that we're people too. You know, I think they think, you know, I think the whole you know, i that whole starving artist thing, starving artist, I, I mean I've been a, <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit over that now, you know, and and you bring such a lot of skill and expertise to the table when you perform. But
0: that's not necessarily f- reflected in the fee that you can charge. And so moving forward, as we sort of hopefully come out of the pandemic and things start to open up and, and um, spaces are open for performing, how do you envision the future? Oh, um, for me personally
1: or, or performers in general? For you. For me, um, I you know, oh my gosh, everyone needs a lucky break. But I would love, I would love the duo and what we've been doing in lockdown to have a lucky break. I would love, I would love someone in the media to pick it up, someone in the press, you know, a, a TV show. Um, and I would, I would like, I would like somebody to have, you know, and I'm going to say this: I'd love a record company to have the balls. Literally, the boss to sign um, two women who are older. You know, not under twenty-five. You know, I got ta- I got turned down for a quarter of a million pound album deal when I was thirty-three because I was told I was too old. At thirty-three, you know, so it's like I would like them to sign two older women who really know what they're doing, who really have a great product and have a lot of skill and talent. Um, and want to spread the joy and spread the love of their music and their performing, um, and not just write us off because we're older. You know, and I I would like to think in this day and age, there's got to be some record company out there who's got the balls to do that. Yeah, hear, hear. You know, there's a very massive act in America called The Piano Guys, who were actually two middle-aged men. I think they were, I don't know, late 30s or something. And they got, they're a pianist and a cellist, okay, both highly classically trained, who got together with a PR man and a videographer. So the four of them, they got together and they said, we're going to split this four ways and we're just going to start doing videos. And, And a record company approached them off the back of it. Now, they didn't turn around and said oh no you're too old you're 38 or 39 or whatever they were um they just saw yeah interesting videos great music let's and they've sold gazillions you know um wouldn't that be nice to happen in the uk to two
0: women you know watch this space yeah watch this space so um talking of balls <laughs> um <laughs> I wonder with all of your experiences and the challenges of of building your business and a a career in the arts, how do you define courage? Oh, there's a big question. (laughs)
1: Courage is to get up off the floor when you've been well and truly trodden on, when you've been kicked in the face, when you've been stabbed in the back. That is courage. And to when people have said no 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 no, when you've been rejected a hundred times a uh, uh, two hundred times three hundred times, I mean any actress who's out there you know doing her stuff any you know any model who's been to a hundred castings and only got ten of them, you know these are all these are all courageous women, you know there's so much rejection in our business, and it's just that got to get up I've got to keep going you know and 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 also you know when you just don't quite fit the bill you just don't quite fit the mold oh well you're not really classical oh well you're not really a dancer because you're too tall and just kind of making your own destiny with the skill set you do have you know it might not you know back in back in the day people weren't there weren't really as many diverse artists you know you could look at Bowie and say well he was this and you know but I look at um you know film stars from the past and they were doing acting as well you know they were trying to diversify I think all of that being an all-round entertainer we need to go back to that really and that takes
0: courage Thank you so much, Lisa, Pleasure. for spicing up the image of the violin <laughs> and bringing a whole new energy to what is possible with your blaze and red hot strings. Thank you so much; it's been fantastic talking to you, and I can't wait wait to hear more of the album. And good luck with it. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you so much, Lou, and
1: and I wish you all the all the very best with your podcast. Thank you. And your brave girl. And thanks very much for having me. And Bella and I, as my Cocker Spaniel, will say goodbye. Thanks
0: then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you, Lisa, for showing us that we can always transform what we know to be the classical way of doing things into something that truly reflects ourselves and our contribution in the world. You can find out more about Lisa's work on www.lisarowland.com www.redhotstrings.com And follow her on Instagram at Lisa Rowlin Violin. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.